Good morning. How's everybody? If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 15 this morning. I remember at 22, I just graduated college. I'd moved to the Bay Area. My friends tried to get me drunk. And they weren't just any friends. They were in my Christian church small group. They were amazed that I hadn't been drunk at this point in life. And they thought one of our nights it'd be fun to all get drunk together. I grew up in church like many of you. And I believe that the Christian life was about obedience and fulfilling a checklist. A good Christian prayed. He read the Bible. You attended church. You refrained from all the dirty sins, which include swearing, drinking, bad movies, drugs, and anything to do with sexual immorality. Failure to satisfy this checklist resulted in shame and condemnation from my community, from my parents, and even myself. Because there was nothing worse than being labeled a bad Christian and disappointing God. There was this high standard where I grew up. And I felt this constant pressure to perform, and I felt shame if I did something wrong. And I felt like this form of bondage in my life. You see, my Christian life was defined by activity and performance. I was living for God's approval and not from God's approval. Fast forward to this story in my 20s, I was introduced to this new group of Christian friends who emphasized that we have grace and freedom they would explain to me, Jesse, there's no longer condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's this perfect love that casts out all our fear and shame. And there's something positive. I learned to claim this grace over my life and not live in the shame that it had defined so many years of my life early in church. Because I realized for the first time that Jesus wasn't disappointed in me. And I found this new sense of freedom and joy, but there was something missing. I struggled. I struggled in seeing what separated my life from those who don't, didn't know Christ. You see, these Christians that I was hanging out with in my small group, they didn't mind drinking too much, cussing, sleeping with their boyfriends and girlfriends, experimenting with drugs. Church attendance was optional. Serving their community rare. They listened to explicit music, watched raunchy movies, and they were obsessed with the, this American dream. And I felt like I traded one form of bondage for a different type of bondage. In both places during my Christian life, I felt confused, I felt frustrated, like I was missing something. Earlier in my Christian life, I was zealous, I was committed, I was determined to follow Jesus at all costs, and in the process became a self-righteous troll. Then in my 20s, I thought the answer was this newfound exploitation of God's grace in my life, which pretty much allowed me to live my life shame-free from all my mistakes, all my sins. And it became this excuse to justify all my sinful choices. This morning, to some extent and degree, I think we all fall into one of these extremes. And I see it more as a spectrum. To which side you belong. One being absolute obedience and legalism. And ten, meaning grace and freedom, it's all I have. I think, if we're being honest, these, these numbers change throughout our lives. They change based on our circumstances. Some of you this morning might strive really hard in your faith. You're diligent in reading your Bible, you're praying, you're giving, you're serving. Other people in your life might think of you as legalistic because you only watch those appropriate movies, listen to Christian music, and only spend time with those people of, of high repute. You are committed 
and nobody would ever doubt you. Some of you find yourselves on the other side of the spectrum. You hate legalistic practices, and you found them revolting, and you found them a form of bondage. Some of you grew up with a purity culture where Christian freedom was restricted at every possible moment throughout your upbringing. And similar to my story, you might have reacted against all these legalistic restrictions, and now you aren't too bothered by spotty, spotty church attendance, the fact that you haven't cracked open your Bible for months, you don't pay attention to the movies or media that influences your life, service is optional, cussing, over drinking, it's all good. We have grace. And you know what? That's fine. In this passage this morning, Paul begins again where we're at by asking a similar question to the one we asked last week. If you read with me in verse 15, he asks this question. I'll read from the ESV. Paul says this, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. And here's this question that we asked last week, very similar. Should we sin because we aren't under law anymore? I got grace, so am I off the hook? And Paul once again says, by no means, it makes no sense. And I think if we answer yes, then we have yet to understand who God is, and we don't understand who we are. I don't think there's a doubt that we can't understand the gravity of this question this morning as we look at Romans without understanding who Paul's audience is. You see, Paul is speaking to Jewish Christians who are all about following the law and obedience. And on the other hand, you had the Gentiles. The Gentiles are saying, we got grace and we have the freedom to do whatever we want. And the Gentiles would blame shift and say, look at these Jewish Christians. They are a bunch of legalists. And the Jewish Christians would point their fingers right back and say, look at these Gentiles, they're, they're pagans, utilizing their grace as a license for wickedness. I think it's worth mentioning that I think the same tension exists for us this morning. I think these same debates happen today. Come on, if we're honest, don't we do this to each other? Wow, did you hear they watch those type of shows? Wow, did you hear that... They really drink and have a lot of fun when they go out. Gosh, did you hear about those weirdos who get up at 4 a.m. for devotions and accountability? Wow, aren't they legalistic? They got rid of their TV? Wow, those people only listen to Christian music. And I think these debates still happen, even in our churches and our small groups today. And I think we need to lean in this morning what Paul is saying here in Romans. I think he has an answer for us. Read with me in verse 16. Paul says this, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul says this morning, you are slaves of the one you obey. Notice here he says, you are either a slave of sin or of obedience. And in verse 18, Paul will make the case a slave of Christ. It's very black and white. It's all about our identity. Notice one, your identity is a slave. Number two, your obedience determines who your master is. There's no really easy way to dive into a passage like this this morning. You were a slave. You are a slave. This is your identity according to Romans. And the question here is what master will you serve? Jesus reminds us in the gospel of Matthew chapter 6. 
He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. As a slave in the first century, you were not the master of your fate, but you were always subject to your master. And as a slave, you were under bondage to your master until he dies. At this point, your slavery would be transferred over to a new master. You're always going to be a, a slave. And I believe this is the point that Paul is trying to drive home in this verse, that we were slaves to sin, but now our slavery has been transferred over to a new master, namely Jesus Christ, which now forges our new identity. In other words, you are no longer a slave of sin, but of God. This screams offense in our culture of a freedom and autonomy It's not a very popular message. You are a slave of Christ. Go get that tattooed on your arm. Freedom in our culture is defined by endless choices and options, free from any imposed restrictions. We are offended by the notion that we answer to anyone or anything. The world offers an enticing alternative viewpoint. Human self-expression and endless customization of the good life. It looks so appealing. The problem is that this looks like freedom. There's actually another form of bondage. The world wants you to believe that freedom is the opposite of restraint. David Brooks, who is an author of the book, The Second Mountain, he talks about millennials entering their professional life. He talks about this anxiety pandemic among young people as they are bombarded by their newfound freedom. They are no longer restrained by the structures of school semesters, college universities. They're in their early 20s, and they are told to follow their heart, pursue your dream, and follow your passion. There's no more structure. Go figure your life out. And Brooks observes what happens to these people. They are paralyzed. They are paralyzed by this advice to do whatever they want and follow your passion because endless opportunities and options, they, it paralyzes because they are desperately afraid to make the wrong choice. Which I think is interesting that this freedom contradicts the very thing it offers and it becomes a very restraint in their lives. We see this all the time in our lives. There are no right or wrong answers when it comes to the good life. But do whatever makes you happy. We are a culture that lives with constant FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. I'm convinced it's one of the worst forms of oppression and presents itself as one of the greatest threats of our joy and our contentment. Author Alan Noble says that we have no cleared upon destination in life when it comes to the good life, but we have endless means and opportunities. The good life itself defines whatever you want to make it. And you are daily presented a million methods to achieve it. The corporate ladder, working hard, achieving monetary success, financial security, family purpose, influence, traveling, helping other people, and the list continues. What good life should you pursue? More money, more experiences, more pleasure, more purpose. This, this is the, there is the endless freedom that the world offers on a silver platter. And yet the hoax is that we are bombarded by this nagging feeling of pressure that we aren't achieving it. One moment you think you got it, the next month you have to take up a new goal. Because there's just this one little missing piece that if you just got your fingers wrapped around it, you might have it. 
And the process repeats year after year. I just need a little bit more of this. If only I had gone in this direction in my life just a little bit sooner. Oh gosh, his or her life, that looks so much more fulfilling. I want to try that lifestyle. Or what if I'm making the wrong choice? Or, or you finally feel like you made it. You feel like you got it. Everything's great. You commit yourself to a plan. And then you all of a sudden you scroll social media and you get, you get jealous and the process repeats itself. Freedom must exist with restraint. I like what Tim Keller says in Every Good Endeavor. He says, modern people like to see freedom as the complete absence of any constraints. But think of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it is restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon even to live is destroyed. The fish is not more free, but less free. If it cannot honor the reality of its nature, the same is true with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of aerodynamics, they will crash into the ground. But if they follow them, they will ascend and soar. The same is true in many areas of life. I want us to catch this part. He says, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. Those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. You are a slave. We are slaves. And we can only find freedom when we embrace our limitations as creatures made in his image. Who are made to be dependent on him. You are a slave of God. This is our new identity. We have a new master, and there is freedom in our new identity. Read with me verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There is the beauty of the gospel interwoven into the start of verse 17. We who were in Christ, or are in Christ, were transferred from the dominion of darkness into the light of his kingdom. We were dead in our trespasses. We are enticed by the principalities of this world, but by his grace, we have been rescued. Jesus says in the gospel of John, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In our new identity, this new freedom that we have, we have been set free. And before Paul continues, identity always must precede actions. It sets the framework. It sets the guidelines for how we operate as Christ's people. For example, if you are in a band and you play piano, your identity is a piano player, right? You, won't be, you know you're not going to be playing drums. You're not going to be soloing on the guitar. You have an identity. You know some kind of constraints are going to be there. Identity is the what in Paul's argument. Obedience is the how. It's the manual. It's the next steps. This is who we are. This is what we do. And I think one of the greatest problems in our discipleship and our churches is the emphasis of obedience over identity. We have to be careful here because Paul is building his case for the Christian identity. This is who we are now. And once we know we are, obedience is the natural result. 
And I want to say it, can't, it cannot be the other way around. And we do a terrible job at this. And if we just rush to obedience, we are in danger of legalism and just being guilty of fulfilling a checklist. And likewise, as I shared my story at the beginning, if you only focus on the freedom and the grace, we ignore, the, we, we ignore discipleship, we ignore obedience. And the problem that we often see is this, we forget who we are. We forget our identities. Obedience, according to Paul, is essential to the Christian life. There's no way around obedience for those that are in Christ Jesus. Our obedience, according to this text, is going to say that it reveals our allegiance. It's through obedience that we can understand the Christian freedom that Paul is talking about. Because Jesus came to build a kingdom. He showed us a new way to be human. He's the ultimate example of what it is to be human. And he modeled it perfectly according to Philippians chapter 2 through his obedience to the cross. Jesus says if you want life, you must die to yourself. You must deny yourself. And this, he outlines, is the path of discipleship. This is the upside down kingdom we talked about in Matthew. And this is the start of a life of obedience as believers. This could not be more opposite of the world that we live in. Like, this is ridiculous to a world that says, satisfy your longings, go live for yourself, go find your pleasure. Obedience, submission, this is so suppressive and binding. But think about it for a moment. We often trade some freedoms to gain other freedoms. As many of you know, I recently got married. This September, me and my wife, Kezia, entered into this covenant of marriage. We made a covenant before everyone that we are now devoted exclusively to one another. And we don't see this as suppressing our freedom or binding, but actually a channel that will hopefully foster love, intimacy, and devotion. I remember speaking with my roommate's father the night before the wedding, and he's this adorable 80-year-old Hungarian man who wears like those really cool hats. And he patted my shoulder the night before my wedding, and he looked at me in the eyes and said, enjoy your last night of freedom. <laughs> he let out this big, cheerful European laugh and walked away. <laughs> I can't help but laugh, but I think so many people see marriage and our idea of Christian freedom in the same way. That you've sac- we've sacrificed this freedom. I mean, we've sacrificed this, this freedom to date or be with any other person romantic- romantically from this day forward. And we don't see the need to see other people on Mondays because of how suppressive our, our, our marriage covenant is. And it doesn't mean there's not going to be struggles, there's not going to be ups and downs. But the world believes that whatever makes you happy, but it's so hard to cultivate a marriage with that mindset. If you leave yourself open constantly to endless choices. Jesus came to teach us a way of life. He called it the narrow road. And he said, this is where joy is to be found to the fullest. As apprentices of Jesus, this is what the life of obedience should look like. He even says in the gospel of John that the truth will set you free. It's the same idea with our kids. You cannot give your kids endless freedom. There are restrictions and they're for your kids good, and they're, good, they're good, there for their flourishing. You don't just hand them matches or feed them cookies whenever they want. They have restrictions. They go to bed at a certain time. You don't just hand them the car keys when they ask you to drive the car. 
that would be that would be bad. They have restrictions because this will lead to their flourishing. Notice here again in verse 18, you have been set free from sin. Paul in Galatians says, it's for freedom that you have been set free. This is your identity. And this doesn't mean now we get to live however we want to. It's sort of ridiculous with this identity that Paul is pushing for. You've been set free from slavery and prison, so why on earth would you go back to the prison and use your freedom to actually harm yourself? This doesn't make sense in Paul's argument. You have a new master. You are a slave, and this is where freedom now exists. And sin is a terrible and oppressive master. But we have a new master, and he's different. Because true freedom is slavery to Christ. True freedom is slavery to Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty. Jesus says these famous words. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus says his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. That we are now yoked to Christ, and that he is now our gracious and loving master. You have been bought at a price, and you belong to him and not yourself. And his yoke, and this is key, his yoke leads to rest and flourishing for your soul because obedience to him is not suppression but liberation for our souls. Read with me verse 19 through 22. He says this, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. There's a lot of big words in these verses. I want to point our attention to one. It's called sanctification. It's the process of us being conformed into the image of Christ. As apprentices of Jesus, as followers of him, we are becoming more and more like him. We are being set apart as the people of God. We are becoming holy like him. And this process begins with the freedom that we have in our identity. Obedience is the natural outcome of this identity. We want to follow in his footsteps. And finally, through this process, we are becoming more and more like him. This is the path of discipleship. And this is the gracious invitation of Jesus for us this morning. Obedience is hard. (laughs) I don't want to sugarcoat that this morning. The idea of sanctification, I think, is important because it's a process. We don't just magically wake up and take a pill and we're there tomorrow. It's a process that endures our whole life. And when Mark takes chapter 7 next week, he's going to speak at length about this, about the difficulty of our flesh, about the difficulty of sin that still tempts. But I believe this, that the more we exercise this muscle, the more that we live out of our identity and we obey as a result of that identity, 
the easier it becomes. And again, we must warn ourselves from this danger of moving toward performance because we are performers in our culture. And we need to refrain from being behavior coaches. What I mean by that is we have this danger when someone messes up in our community, in our group, we like to shame people. We like to put them down. We revert to the external, the action, instead of reminding people of their newfound identity. And it's so easy to shame them and put people down, but I think a response as a community, as we think about, as we apply this into our lives, is we have to be those that remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. That should be our default. And I know it's so much easier to just look at the sin and say, man, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Rather than pointing them back to who do you think you are in Christ? Paul, this morning, he's speaking this tension as I shared this story at the beginning between grace and obedience. And how on earth do we live this Christian life? I echo Rick from last week. I sometimes feel frustrated. I find myself looking around between what, what does it mean to walk in obedience and also in grace? I sometimes resent my, my childhood church because I often felt shamed into obedience. I look back and I'm not fond of those memories. On the other hand, I'm frustrated that Christians use Jesus' grace as an excuse to live your own version of the good life. And what Paul's arguing this morning is there is an in-between. There is a middle ground. And the problem that we often focus on, we focus on obedience, we focus on grace, all while we miss our identity, who we are. It's missing in the conversation. And we either up our obedience after a message like this, or we lather on the grace rather when it's a deeper, deeper issue of who we are. Paul ends this passage with uh, one of the most famous verses in Romans. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He caps his point here in verse 23. These are the stakes. Eternal life and death. These are the stakes that we have this urgency to claim our newfound identity in Christ. Be who you are. That's what we've been saying last week. That's what we've been saying this week. This whole chapter, Paul is reminding us who we are in Christ. I can't tell you how many times as a, as a friend, as a family member, how many times I've been asked this question about grace and obedience. It's one of, it's one of the most popular questions I've been asked in life when it comes to questions about our faith. If I'm already accepted in Christ, then what's the big deal if I go on a sinning spree? These questions miss the mark because we are forgetting about our identity. It just doesn't make sense. In the analogy that Paul uses, it's like having this oppressive and abusive slave owner your whole life. And then comes this rescuer, this gracious new master who takes you back, who buys you back. And your options are you can either go back to this abusive master or you can embrace this new and loving, gracious master. Because we have been bought and we do not belong to ourselves but to him. What would it look like for us this morning 
living in Parker to embrace this, this identity. Slavery to Christ, not a popular thing that we often say. I think one thing that's applicable is it's, it should be a filter that we see our lives in. What I do with this temple, it matters to him. What I do with my time, how I love my wife, how I treat my kids, our work ethic, our money, our giving, our focus, our attention, it should be the filter of how we look in everything in our lives. I struggle with identity. I struggle with this idea that my faith is about performance. And I often point fingers at people who abuse grace. I'm also in the back corner sometimes making fun of those legalistic Christians in my life. And I think that stems from my insecurity. And it comes from ignorance. It comes from forgetting who I am. I'm so busy pointing fingers and entering into the debate of obedience versus grace that I forget who I am in Christ. For those of you who struggle with grace, as we think about that spectrum at the beginning, I think the word for us this week is rest in the fact that you are loved, accepted in Christ. That we need to remember that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. Stop striving and enter into the rest that he provides. That we need to embrace this posture and accept the fact that you belong and can do nothing not to belong if you're in Christ. And this is going to take time and energy. For those of you who struggle with obedience, on the other side, I'd give the same, I'd give the same advice as I did before, only with a slight nuance. Ask yourself, in light of being loved and accepted, how do my decisions reflect this identity? Does it line up? Are there areas of disobedience in your life that you have ignored in their exploitation of God's grace? Regardless of it, it begins by remembering who we are. As the people of God, we are loved, accepted, and belong in his family. And out of this corporate identity, I pray that we would claim our freedom through obedience to the way of Jesus. That it would transfer into the way that we treat our friends, our communities, that we would be praying constantly on the mouth of our lips. Your will, not my will, God. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we thank you that we are yours. We thank you for our identity. We thank you for the freedom that that means. Lord, thank you that you are gracious, that you are gentle, that you are loving, that, Lord, your yoke is easy, your burden is light. And, Lord, I struggle so much with performance and put on a mask and showing everybody the, my best foot forward. I struggle with sometimes understanding that I'm loved and accepted, and I pray that as a church that we'd lean in to that. We lean into that, Lord. It's not a performance. It begins with who we are in you. That you are a master, Lord. So I pray that that would produce the fruit and that would lead us to follow you because that is where life is found. That is where joy is experienced. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.